Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Blair Technique Podcast. I'm really looking forward to this particular conversation because it's such an interesting and I guess controversial, uh, but foundational concept related to upper cervical. And that's some of the important history points, you know, in the development of upper cervical chiropractic, which is, you know, really concurrent with the development of chiropractic in general. Um, And then all the techniques that we have today, the things that we, you know, do differently, these are all derivatives of, you know, upper cervical concepts that were developed. And so, I think it's really important to be mindful of the history of what we're doing, you know, and, and those stepping stones and the ways that things changed and, and moved over time so that we can have a good idea of where we're at now and, and where we might be headed. So I, I love this stuff. It's fascinating. It's very interesting, you know, to, you know, for some people, the history of chiropractic is like, you know, it's like the monkey on their back and they wish that it wasn't the way that it was, but we can't change that. Right. Um, so we can learn from it. We can embrace it. You know, obviously we're not beholden to any ideas, you know, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting progression and, and I think it's worth exploring. So, uh, with me is Dr. Tyler Evans. He's a uh, well-rounded in all the different areas of chiropractic. And I think like the modern upper cervical chiropractor, should be pretty solid in the philosophy, science, and art of chiropractic. And I, I put the history in there, you know, as a, as another topic. And I think he's done a good job of getting a handle on all that stuff. Uh, so I think before we even get into why, why we should even care about upper cervical history and why we think it's worth having the conversation, if you could describe Tyler, maybe some of your experience as a DELT, how you guys learned a little bit about history and, and maybe how you got into the topic. Yeah, no, that's great. And thank you for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, so when I was in school, I had no idea about chiropractic. I got adjusted one time. Uh, I was like, this is amazing. I was looking for a profession and I was drawn right into it. I'm one of those kind of people that I hit the ground and I'm like, yes, I'm going to do this a thousand percent. So I went to school, went out to life West. I was from Indiana, um, kind of, you know, adventuring across the country and I got distracted in California. You know, it's like, oh, wow, I can go surfing and snowboarding and all these fun things. And I got a little sidetracked and got, uh, you know, out of um, kind of out of the the uh, momentum of school and Delta Sigma Chi pulled me back in. Hmm. Uh, Anchor Tyel, uh, Andrew McCann's, uh, a lot of the upper cervical guys that were there at the time, Sean Dill, you know, we had some big names uh, at the school and uh, I just really got drawn in to the history and the foundations of upper cervical and how uh, how important uh, having principle and philosophy were to having a successful practice and getting those amazing results that all the chiropractors talked about over the years. And it was just cool because, you know, you got Dr. Brooks, he just passed away, but he was a a big, uh, a big part of Delta Sigma Chi for the years that I've been in it. Um, And he was a plethora of information and history and Sean Dill. And I had Sean Dill first class philosophy one uh, and was challenged by him, uh, you know, my first uh, uh, quarter there. So, you know, I got drawn into it right away and, and on I went. Um, and, uh, you know, I did the diplomate program and I'm a part of the Blair Society and I really love Blair work. Thank you, Darren White, who got me into this. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a many factorial thing 
And uh, I think it's important for people to have access to the information that's taken me and you, you know, years to gather um, that it kind of gets lost if we don't keep talking about it, if we don't right. keep sharing the knowledge, uh, you know, these concepts kind of go by the, well, it's okay. Yeah. We just kind of do what we're doing. We do the thermography. We do the leg checks. We do what we've been taught, but knowing the history and the evolution of it really, for me, I know, at least for me, maybe not for everybody, but understanding the, the way, the why and how it evolved makes so much sense. Once you look at it from a historical perspective, you're like, oh, you mean for the first, like, uh, for, what is it? It would have been 1930 was when HIO came out until 1957, we were doing uh, solid headpiece adjustments, right? And then in 1957, we got the toggle headpiece, you know? And so Dr. Blair was in practice for eight years before that toggle headpiece came out. I didn't know that when I first started doing Blair. I'm like, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. the thing about that, it's, you know, that's the context of a lot of the development of the techniques that we have now. So if you want to get into the mind of Dr. Blair, you kind of got to start with what, how was he trained? What was the conversation right. at the time? When did you know, he go to school? Exactly. Because the, yeah. the progression from there <clears throat> is where we've arrived at what we have. And that's kind of, you know, when I think about the future of, of all this upper cervical, you know, with all the different technology and the different opportunities, it's like, that's an important to keep, to be mindful of that progression so that we don't kind of lose, uh, lose an anchor to what it is that we're actually trying to accomplish, you know, what mm -hmm. it is that our chiropractic values are, are seeking to express through technique. And so, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just fascinating to kind of overlay all these different timelines of technique development of development in the culture and the history in the country and, you know, all these different things. And, you know, trying to keep it all straight can be a task for sure. And there's a lot of conflicting information out there, depending on the sources that you seek out. Uh, so folks, you know, have differences of opinion about certain things. And, and to your point, the game of telephone, you know, happens all the time. And it's, I heard from so-and-so, so I, I retold it the way I remember it and so on and so forth. And some of this stuff, it's impossible to verify at this point because we don't have, you know, firsthand accounts of some of this stuff. So to your point, it's like, let's just keep the conversation going so that over time, the things that are consistent uh, emerge and, and those are the things to pay attention to. So, yeah. So in your, in your mind, uh, and maybe we even touched on it already, but why should we even care about upper cervical history? Is that something that holds us back or is that something that we should be mindful of? Well, I think it's both, you know, with everything it's, uh, it's both and right. And so I think, um, it's important to know the history because <clears throat> there were some times where things were, um, were not super clear and a little mucky and like, okay, what are we really doing here? You know, for the first, I think it was from <clears throat> 1895 until about 1910, what I read was that most chiropractors were afraid to adjust the neck. And a lot of times in the clinic, they would leave it up to BJ or hmm. the clinic department heads to adjust the upper cervical spine because they were maybe that was just a, a history thing that gets passed down. And I mean, it's not necessarily true, but I, I, what I would imagine is that there were doc, there were medical doctors who were probably ready and willing and not to, you know, crush the medical profession here. But at that time it was a battle between chiropractic and medicine. And uh, there were a lot of medical doctors who might've been looking to go after chiropractors for injuring a patient or, you know, and so 
you know, there was a lot of stigma around adjusting the neck or manipulating the neck. And there were, and you have to remember, there were other techniques, other groups, osteopaths and bone yeah. setters who were adjusting or not adjusting, but manipulating the body for thousands of years. So, right. you know, the, we were developing our techniques in a, in a kind of in a crazy time in the early 1900s there. And uh, chiropractic came out on top because of its specificity. And, yeah. you know, we can talk about that, uh, you know, in 1910, BJ brought in the, uh, or 1911, 19, what, you know, whichever book you read or, or yeah, <laughs> it's, it's always tricky to find the, the right reference, but, uh, around 1910, 1911, he brought in that Scheidel Western, uh, first x-ray machine into the, the BJ, into the Palmer school. And, uh, you know, for the first, I don't know, probably five or six years, they were developing x-ray technique. Yeah. Right. And, of the spine. And in the past, you know, I think chiropractic gets a, a bad name for a lot of things uh, that we weren't great at communicating, but man, oh man, did medicine respect our ability to take x-rays and our osteological laboratories, uh, you know, how much we studied the bones, like actually held bones and studied them and looked at the joints. Uh, and those x-ray uh, developments, they actually impacted a lot of different professions. So the x-ray really brought chiropractic to a new level. And then in 1924, we had the NCM and the NCM started this process of specificity even further from what we call the Merrick system, where they were basically looking at, okay, what's your symptom yep. and where's the level that that problem might be uh, located at in the uh, vertebral column in terms of uh, nerve ganglia coming out and they have the, the Merrick chart and a lot of chiropractors know that chart, you know, and, uh, and use that chart yeah. today even, but maybe don't even know the history of that chart. And depending on who you talk to, we could talk about Dr. Havoc and she talks about, you know, bones don't squish nerves and, and, you know, so there's a lot of development that we've had since the Merrick system. And from that Merrick system, we developed majors and minors. Mm -hmm. And so it was, okay, so we've got a, a couple of vertebra that we might adjust. How many times a day do we adjust them? Right. right. So back in the day, they would literally find a T5 and hammer that thing like 10 times a day. to try Basically to until the organic symptoms went away, right? Boom. At liver yeah. place or whatever yeah. it was called. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. So that's an interesting thing. And then one day they were like, okay, well, what, how many times do we need to adjust the bone? And, and what bone do we need to adjust most specifically to get the greatest result? And that was like a light bulb. Oh man. Okay. So if we look at, and as they went up and the NCM came around and they were looking at the data and they said, oh, okay, when we adjust the neck, it shifts the rest of us. Oh, this is interesting. Okay. So we're getting changes that we weren't getting when we were just hammering at T5 all day long. Yeah. Or L1 or L5, right? And so, you know, that development came and it's not to poo-poo other techniques. It's just, that was the development. And there are times and places where I'm sure patients need their lumbar spine adjusted or uh, SI joints adjusted. And that's, that's a thing, but, you know, the NCM developed this information to a point where, okay, we see a pattern 
1930, they released the HIO, BJ, it was like 1929, he started to talk about it, I think, with uh, Reasons for My Faith was one of the pamphlets. Hmm. And then in 1930 was the HIO pamphlet came out. And uh, that was kind of the initial release of the, okay, we're going to, these are the rules, right? So we've got a, for, a foramen that's occluded. We've yep. got, um, we can malposition. measure yeah, yeah, malposition. Yeah. So we've got all these like criteria for the HIO work, hole in one, you know, being the upper cervical. And prior to that, and actually through that first, those first couple of years, that was called the axis rule. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people might not know this, but if you look in the, uh, I believe it's the Ramir x-ray book that came out in 1930, 1930. No, it's actually EA Thompson. Uh, Cause I think Thompson, it's either Thompson or Ramir, but anyways, one of the early x-ray books, it, it talked about it because they had the x-ray analysis for the upper cervical spine in there. Maybe it was even uh, Stevenson, one of them. You can look, you look at these books and you'll see. But that, and this is the cool thing is the green books are a history log of the developments. Of exactly. Things. And they had this axis role where they would adjust C2 as the primary for everybody, right? And that was right up until about 1934, 1933, because uh, volume 18 was published Christmas. I think it, or it was finished on Christmas. I, I was just pulling it up. It said, uh, we're writing this on Christmas day, 1933. So it was right at the end of 1933, beginning of 1934, volume 18 came out. And some might say that Dr. A.A. A. Wernsing might've had some influence over BJ and his crew. Uh, I believe it was one of the Himes gentlemen uh, Herbert Himes, maybe, uh, it was his, his kind of tight crew mm. and, um, Wernsing brought in the concepts that he was looking at. And this was during the great depression. Yes. It was during the great depression. Right. Wernsing had said, Hey, I've been seeing patients, but it's been slow. So I've had time to, to kind of do some research and some development of this, this idea of Atlas specific. And again, this is, this is what Wernsing says. I'm, you know, we don't know exactly what happened, but he saw a book that said, I believe it said axis specific on the table. And Wernsing said, Hey, look, why don't we look at Atlas as a primary? And shortly thereafter, Wernsing is notated in the beginning of volume 18. And it, it's now subluxation specific and out. Adjustment, uh, specific. adjustment specific, but it's basically Atlas, you know, is one of the, it's, is the primary over axis, which is the secondary. So it's interesting how that happened. Right. And really right up until that time. And then after that, okay, now we have this focus on C1. And at the time it was all bone pushing on nerve. It was about bone occluding the uh, frame and magnum, the uh, spinal canal. And <clears throat> that was a amazing development because you know if we have that most mobile joint in the in the spine and having the largest misalignment that you can have in the spine right there then okay we're going to correct that and we're going to let the body heal and do its thing from there so we developed this atlas specific work or atlas and axis specific work from there and then we start to get this 
kind of plethora of techniques that develop. And it took about 10 years. So by 1941, Wernsing had published Atlas specific book. He had been teaching it through the 30s and depends on who you talk to, you know, it's like J.F. Grostick started to teach his work in 1946 and that developed NUCA and AO and all the other te techniques. And you talk about the articular techniques we had, you know, uh, HIO and that ran through until 1950s, 19, like end of 1950s. So 1956 was when the green light speech was. Um, and that was by Herbert Himes, Herbert Marshall Himes. And that was where he said two weeks of upper cervical care. If you're not clearing the spine in two weeks, start looking at the full spine, clearly using majors and minors and focusing on the upper neck, but looking elsewhere. And that came from a huge study. I think they studied like some 17, it was either 17,000 or 1700 patients in the clinic yeah. or students. They were like all students. Yeah. And that was with the contour graph uh machine they were looking at posture changes and whether or not they could get posture changes with full spine versus upper cervical and there's limitations you know and and uh you know i think yeah if you move a bone lower down you're going to get changes and and you know I, I wouldn't say anything against that but then it comes back to okay specifically with upper cervical work where are we at what are we doing and when we look at the timeline if we go back and we look at um, the articular work, Dr. Blair graduated in 1949. The clinic was opened in 1935. So we had- but We're talking about the B.J. Palmer Research Clinic. Yeah, the B.J. Palmer Research right, so, Clinic. So folks don't think you meant Dr. Blair's clinic. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yep. So the, the B.J. Palmer Clinic, which at the time, I think they said it cost some like million dollars in their money, their money or today's money, I can't remember, but- lots of money, right? Like way more than uh, what most people had ever even seen at that time because BJ was crushing it. I mean, he had the radio station, they were, you know, traveling all over the world and, and doing chiropractic. It was just, it was an amazing thing at that time. Um, <clears throat> so you had the clinic open 1935, you've got these new concepts. Somewhere in there, in that 1935, 1936, they started to bring in a solid, so they had been doing the knee chest posture for the whole spine, actually, uh, from in the 20s, and then headed up into the 30s. And then in the like mid 30s, they started to switch to uh, side posture. And that might, you know, it is what it is. But that's we know that from the clinic records, we, we can see that they were doing side posture. Uh, solid headpiece, so no drop headpiece uh, from eh, roughly the mid 30s uh, on until 1957 when this when the toggle headpiece came out. But Dr. Blair didn't even graduate until 1949. And we were developing x-rays. We got the base posterior x-ray in 1938. Um, I believe the vertex came shortly after that. And that's where the orthogonal people took that on and started using that. But that came out of the, the Palmer Clinic, the, the, at least the base posterior did. I'm not sure which one came first. I'm sure they were probably right around each other, but um, 
And the predecessor of the protracto view, you know, the oblique nasiums yeah. they used to take at the, at the research clinic. And they, I think they did yeah. them just straight 45, but you know, that yeah. kind of was one of the important things when I read volume 20, the first time I'm going like, Oh, yep. Dr. Blair didn't just come up with this out of the blue. Nope. He took a prior piece of information and figured out how to refine it, yep. which is very interesting. You know, it's not like all of a sudden he just, you know, stumbled upon some crazy thing, but it was, yeah. and that's the point to make with a lot of this technological development, as we're talking on this piece of it is with each piece of technology that was introduced from the x-ray, okay, we can actually see the spine now. We've always had this, you know, held the uh, regard of the nervous system very highly in chiropractic. So how do we get better at measuring the mental impulse, right? Is what they're going after. And how do we get better yeah. at measuring the effect of the nervous system pre and post adjustment led to the development of the NCM. And then with all those different concepts, it's, it's always a leveling up, you know, and BJ always, always says stuff like, you know, trying to get a, a increase successes and decrease failures yes. with cases, things like that. It's always a matter of efficiency, right? It's yes. like, how do we realize these philosophical principles more accurately, more efficiently, more effectively in patients, how we get better results quicker. And right? that, so John, the constant... that, goes back to, that goes back to Didi. Didi said that the adjustment specific, he said yeah. that that's, that's in like one of his last writings was the most specific adjustment the most efficient correction or adjustment, uh, you know, uh, I forget exactly what his language was, but he was talking about that in 1913, 1910, you know, yeah. so that was always the language of chiropractic. The one, the, the one cause one cure. Yeah. That was a big thing. One cause one cure, um, the sick healing, the sick, you know, to get well, that whole thing. And it was all about efficiency, efficiency. You're right. And that's, what's so cool about chiropractic is they would throw things out. They would be yep. like, yeah, this works. This doesn't. Okay. We're going to go with this. And it was slow, you know, and it took time, but Holy cow, we have this amazing, like, I think about it, you know, and I'm like, I do this little thing and I just tap right here. And I just had a patient that just told me today I've seen her for six months. She came in, she was dizzy, brain fog, fatigue, like couldn't do things, like couldn't lift her arms up, couldn't, uh, she, we're in New England and they, they do lobstering. So she couldn't do lobstering. And now they, she can go do this stuff. And all I do is a little tink, 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 you know, and bam, her life comes back. And that's all because all these guys for all these people, women and men for many years poured their lives into chiropractic, went to jail for chiropractic. We yeah. just had a guy pass away here in uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Tom Peralt, man, it breaks my heart. Um, but he just passed away and he was, he actually was at BJ's funeral hmm. and was a member of Delta Sigma Chi and he got licensure for chiropractic in the state of Massachusetts, get this in the sixties and seventies, yeah. late Massachusetts. Yeah. So it's like these guys, man, people have been fighting hard for a long time to, so that we can go to work every day. Yeah. And I think that gets forgotten, you know, and I think that's important to know. Oh, hundred percent. You know, and, and one of the really interesting things about the development of chiropractic is there's a lot of these things concurrently developing, right? Like one of the yeah. things I've always thought was really cool is that there was a philosophy built in, but the mm -hmm. philosophy was also developing, you know? And yeah. so sometimes folks will argue, you'll see like back and forth, well, on this page in this green book, he said this and that <laughs> it was yeah. like you said, in real time, <laughs> yeah. ideas were changing, 
you know? Yeah. And so you'll, if you follow the, you know, if you follow through those volumes, you'll see that progression and you'll see him contradict things that he said previously, uh, BJ Palmer. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we need to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. It's just appreciating the progression. Right. And so uh, yeah. I find all that stuff really interesting. Cause if you kind of look at the history in terms of the technological development, you look at the philosophical concepts that are developing, you know, the geopolitical circumstances of the times, I mean, all that stuff factors into the context where we're getting these quotes that we hear. Totally. Right. And, and there's so many misattributed quotes, you know, and uh, <laughs> the find it, fix it, leave it al- alone. One is my favorite. It's like everybody thinks Gonstead said that. Yeah, um, I was going to say Gonstead said that, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we're not going to tell you who, if you know, uh, email uh, Blair Cairo podcast at gmail.com with the correct <laughs> person yeah. who said find it fix it leave it alone and i'm going to send you a blair mug in the mail or something like that yeah that's great so that's the first on enterprise but no, you know, and, hey, john if if people want a great read through of the green books without reading all uh 40 some odd volumes whatever many books there are definitely at some point you know get them and read them but this book the palmer chiropractic green books the definitive guide by uh simon senzen uh, Joe Foley and Timothy Faulkner. Man, this book is a gold mine. Yeah. It's got m- almost every single thing in that book is absolutely 100% correct. There's a couple of things that I actually messaged Simon about, like the base posterior. He, he had mentioned that the base posterior was in volume 18. It wasn't. The volume 18 did not have the base posterior. Rotation yeah. did not come around until 1938. Uh, which is important when you're talking about the development of things. But, um, you know, so that book is a great way to kind of cheat your way through reading all the green books. You can get an overview real quick of of like the development. Um, But yeah, you're right. hundred percent, hundred percent. And if you just were interested in the quote, upper cervically focused green books, start with volume 18, 20, Mm -hmm. 25. There's a few in the middle there that are probably you know, suit you too. But like, those are the top three. If you're into chiropractic and into upper cervical and you want to kind of see what was going on in the research clinic, like what some of these developments were, that's, those are the three to start with for sure. Yeah. Um, and if you want to listen to it, you know, Dr. Um, Arthur Plessa did the green book commentaries all on volume 25, basically read volume 25, start to finish in podcast form. And, and we had an interesting conversation. You can go back and listen to my talk with him and also check out that podcast. Cause you can just kind of pick and choose. I mean, some of the things we didn't even get a chance to talk about and, um, you know, we could spend hours on this, but you know, you've got these other really, really interesting historical things like the wet specimen yeah. and, you know, the conversation about the shrinkage of the spinal cord after death yeah. and how much room it takes up in the foramen. And how cool is that? He went to Germany in 1936, something like that. Yeah. It was after the, the clinic was built. I think it was 36 or 37. It was sometime between 36 and 38 that was when Hitler was in charge. Like, and yeah. that was the only place in the world that they could do a frozen dead guy and slice him, yep. you know, and, and they did. And now we have, and that was, that was the first MRI. Pretty much. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like CT scan MRI of the upper cervical spine of the craniocervical junction. Like BJ made that happen. So or, for folks, if, if you've not heard of the wet specimen, uh, Google it, type wet specimen chiropractic. So what we're talking about is basically, you know, a guy met his untimely demise one way or the other. There's, mm-hmm. you know, debate about that. Yep. Uh, and was immediately, you know, basically beheaded, you know, with the atlas and axis. Um, and they, they froze him. They froze him. Froze him, stripped away all the soft tissues. And basically what BJ wanted to see is 
did this guy have a subluxation? You know, what was going on in the spine there? I want to see it for myself. And, you know, it's not like the image quality was what we have today on the x-rays. So they stripped this whole thing down and preserved it. Mm-hmm. And so you can see, and it's where this whole hole in one terminology, you know, has got some of its derivative is looking at the frame of magnum, looking at the occlusion of the frame of magnum with the dens and the atlas. And, you know, that light bulb going off to your point about the hole in one concept, it was like when he saw that in a, in a specimen that was moments before alive, you know, that was kind of the, uh, the big, the big moment. Right. And so it's a little bit of a creepy thing, you know, in our history, it's a little, there's a little bit of like speculation about some of the circumstances, but check that out. Take a look at the image. There's a picture of it in volume 18, you know, like a kind of a black and white grainy one, but you can find other pictures of it online. It's very fascinating. I mean, we can all take a CBCT and reproduce the same image now, but at the time, almost a hundred years ago, that was a huge, that was a huge thing to accomplish. Um, So there's some, there's some of these things I wish we could, you know, have experts dive in on all of it, but I wanted to outline at least, you know, I appreciate you doing that sort of the, uh, the technological developments that kind of underpin upper cervical spine, the graph, NCM, the HIO concept, the drop head piece on the table, you know, the knee chest posture, the side posture, all these different things. When you get into the research lab setting, the research clinic, and you're looking at posture, constant, everything, posture, yeah. constant, x-rays, scanning, uh, the mentimpograph, all that stuff. Like there's a whole lot more to that. So check out those volumes to get some of the details. One of the things that I think is really funny, like this always kind of bothered me um, is when folks make statements or have opinions about BJ or green books and have never cracked one and don't really (laughs) even know. Yeah. He was talking about cerebrospinal fluid flow back then. He was talking about the cerebrovascular aspects of a subluxation. I mean, all the stuff that we get hot and heavy about now were on the radar and he was doing pre and post full spine images and on all kinds of cool stuff. So like, go see before you make any judgments or have an opinion about it, go see what was done, you know, and uh, I think you'd be blown away what was accomplished, like you said, in the 50s, you know, in that research setting with the technology they had. I mean, some really, really groundbreaking stuff. Yeah, 30s, John. I mean, 30s, 40s and 50s was when the clinic was open. So it's worth exploring. I think you'll be blown away. I remember the first time I read volume 18, I was like, what year was this again? This guy was thinking at this level and was way beyond, you know, way beyond his contemporaries by a long shot, you know, in the medical field. So, and, and something that I think is really important to remember is BJ was a big fan of the mastermind and he, he was brilliant and he would literally, he had that typewriter and it had a continuous roll and it would just keep rolling out paper and he would just type and he'd get up at 4 a.m. And he would just write, he would just type ideas, like just, you know, stream and of consciousness, stream of consciousness. Yeah. It was the like innate kind. That's actually part of the green book. Uh, this, this story, if you read the last couple of chapters, it talks about how that, what his, his connection to innate and like his description of innate and the stream of consciousness, like getting in the flow, that was like his thing, but he kind of, he took ideas. I'm not going to say he stole ideas, but he took ideas from like, everybody around him that that was talking about this stuff and you know if you look at uh dr bauer the guy that developed the base posterior x-ray um he mentioned that asymmetry is the number one thing you need to look at and so that was in 1936 37 38 so he was already they were already taught they were talking about asymmetry and they were talking about this articular model and i would argue 
that there really wasn't an articular model until Dr. Blair. You know, I, you can argue that, you know, the C1, C2 adjustments of knee chest are, it's, it is an articular adjustment, but it is not an articular analysis. It is, yeah. a, it is not taking into account the actual articulation. From it's one the line of, drawing analysis. Yeah. Yeah. It's the yeah. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, and it's yeah. kind of funny because I, you know, actually was telling a patient this morning. Cause he was like, what is it? The C1 or C2, you know, I said, here's the deal, man. Like people always ask that it's not the bone, right? Like we're trying to correct the joint, you know, it's the artic. That's right. what really drew me to Blair. It's like, we're not shoving bones from left to right in and out. Yes. Right. You've got abnormal biomechanics going on with a deranged joint, mm-hmm. you know, and there's different terminology people use for that, but it's like, you know, we're, we're using, and this is, again, this is, it goes back to Didi, like using the, the levers of the vertebrae yes. as corrective mechanisms, you know, so that we can correct the joint and, and improve the function of the nervous system. So it's like, yes, it's an atlas adjustment, but why are we want to do an atlas adjustment? Because we want to improve, you know, the neurology of the area. We also want to restore the joint mechanics between yeah. the occiput and the atlas, the atlas and the axis. So it's kind of an interesting, you know, reframing when we talk about articular you know, we're not talking about the segments. We're talking about the joints that the segments include yeah, and yeah. wanting to have a, an effective adjustment. And this was what BJ's 3D torqued subluxation concept was this doesn't just happen left, right, front to back, right? We've got all kinds of 3D motion going on and uh, where Dr. Blair really, you know, brought this and, and made it accessible to guys like us. So we could just go learn the technique was here's the relevant angles. Here's the relevant yeah. anatomical features. And here's how you apply that to an adjustment. So you don't have to be BJ who can see in 3d, look at an AP and a lateral and figure that out in your head. You can just stand mm-hmm. here, put your arm there, move it like this, and you're going to be pretty darn close. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's what that stuff gets me so excited because it's such a fascinating uh, a stepping stone to what we take for granted every day, which is, you know, like you said, getting to show up and do this work and not have to be a savant to be able to get yeah. good results. Totally. Totally. So that's the technological side of it. I think, you know, one of the things that always interested me in upper cervical and drew me to it was how it seems to me that, you know, upper cervical is the best way to express the philosophy of chiropractic in the lives of patients with an appreciation of the science Mm -hmm. through the art of adjustment and the, and the philosophical principles underpinning some of the developments that we talked about and some of what we do, there's a couple that I mentioned that have always been really interested to me, interesting to me, because it it does come back to that efficiency concept. And a lot of the other things we talk about with folks like holding is healing, for example, are based on some of these philosophical principles. And uh, here's one that I, I really love. And I, you know, I'd like to hear what your thoughts on this are related to upper cervical, uh, but the concept of constructive versus destructive survival value. Mm-hmm. Now, when you hear that, what comes to mind? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, it can all go back to like universal forces and, uh, you know, innate intelligence. Yeah. Right. And I, man, it, <clears throat> I, I just had, uh, do you know, anchor tile, do you know, mm-hmm. anchor? or yep. know of him? Yeah. Yes. So anchor was over, uh, over the weekend and he's, uh, I think I can say this now, but he is headed to, uh, to, uh, yeah, I'll just leave it. I'll just leave it at this. He New is, Zealand, uh, right? I think I, I've seen a few things. Out he's going about. to Scotland. Scotland, that's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I hope awesome. I don't get him into trouble here, but <laughs> we can yeah. edit it out later if we need to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we like but, to drop um, bombs here on the Blair Technique yeah. podcast. He's, he's, I mean, man, Anchor 
you know, we used to sit on the couch because we were roommates and uh, sit on the couch and talk about, you know, the uh, the principles and Stevenson and man, the the 33 principles are so beautiful. Anchor nails them. He knows every single one. He knows them inside and out. I just think it's beautiful. The philosophy that we have, it describes the world and how it works and how our bodies work all at once. Like it describes everything and the constructive destructive forces. It's a constant battle uh, in my mind. And, you know, the adjustments can be destructive at times because they are a force into the body. And I would say that, you know, I have patients that do get flare ups at times. So I use less force. And when I do, it's more constructive, you know, and I have to constantly moderate that. I'm always looking to get that best correction with the least amount of force. Um, some patients need a little more uh, 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 force in their adjustment to, to clear them out well. Some people need a little less. So, you know, I think that there's a really good conversation and this may or may not be where you were headed with this, but I think there's a really good conversation between you know, the different techniques and the amount of force that's used, you know, Nuka. And, I mean, Anchor was telling me the other day, he's like, dude, I adjust people and I'm like an inch off their atlas and I'm feeling the adjustment clunk in. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but it's true. And, and I, I've, you know, I've, I've heard that from many Nuka dogs and or, uh, ortho people. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's, I think constructive and destructive forces are an important concept that uh, are always needing to be taken into account. Yeah. And the thing that, you know, this brings to mind a couple things like on the constructive and destructive forces concept, a chiropractic adjustment isn't, is it considered a destructive force, right? That's a universal external force that's mm -hmm. applied to a patient. We're trying to do it for a specific outcome. You know, and the folks that get real into philosophy, will talk about how it's, you know, enticing innate to make an adjustment internally. Yeah. So, you know, we want to be mindful that, where I'm going with this is we want to be mindful that we don't just pound on people all the time because yes. we're chiropractors and everything we do helps, right? Yep. Like we need to be mindful of the physiological consequences of our actions, you know, and do things in a way that honors the body rather than tries to subdue it. And yes. I think that's where the, the philosophy really comes in handy and understanding some of those concepts. And the second part of that is the constructive and destructive survival value. Yep. That's what is the long-term physiological outcome of the input of that force? Yep. Is it aiding in the person's ability to maintain and build constructively health over time, or is it detracting from that? Yep. You know, so when we get into these conversations about what about this and that and the other thing, it's like these concepts were built in, you know, is this adding constructive survival value? That's part of holding is healing, right? It's the accumulative effect of being clear is the, is the benefit of upper cervical care more so than we adjust the atlas and that makes things better. And, and that's, you know, where I'm coming from as, as it relates to philosophy and I'm open to other folks' opinion on that, but that's one of the things that we can boast, you know, and how we see these results, like you're, you're mentioning is the fact that the body doesn't need to be, you know, overloaded and overwhelmed all the time. It needs the right thing done at the right time. And then, you know, the space to heal. Um, and so all these different tools and all these different concepts get applied in that way. Um, and, you know, the use of forces, chiropractic adjustments, you know, can be done in a more effective way using those tools that, you know, were developed along, along the way. So pretty cool stuff. And it's, you know, like you said, if you just actually read those 33 principles, um, man, they're just, they're life principles, you oh, know, and that's what's so, so cool weird. about it. And I always yeah. thought it was funny. I've, I got friends that like went to different chiropractic colleges and, you know, they're not philosophical, but they 
you know, they read all this like modern sort of like uh, metaphysical stuff and they're like meditate, listening to Joe Dispenza and all that stuff. And it's like, dude, what are you talking about? You know, like these, there's so much overlap with these concepts that it's, you know, there's a lot of value there. Check them out. I mean, don't have an opinion about it if, you, if you've never read them or studied it. So add they Stevenson's apply. to the list. They apply to so much. Like, honestly, they, you know, when you look at where we're at in this world today in terms of health, you know, uh, if the world understood the 33 principles, the way Stevenson laid them out and explained them in his textbook, that textbook is amazing. I mean, there's some stuff in it that's old and outdated, but man, if, if the world understood innate intelligence and clearly there are limitations to matter, but man, the, the, the foundational principles of chiropractic are foundational principles of life and understanding those help you live a more quality, impactful life. That's yeah, a man. big thing. Yeah. And, and, and as a chiropractor, you know, we have that built in, you know, mm -hmm. all these other professions have to try to go develop their own personal philosophy that they mm -hmm. can express in work. Ours is built in, you mm -hmm. know, and how awesome is that? And how smart was that, you know, to be developed in that way? I think that's like such an underappreciated aspect of chiropractic, um, you know, that, uh, you know, obviously to your point, like, and this gets back to why history is important. Not so that we can use it as a crutch to explain away our failures, not that we can use it, you know, as a way to beat people up with a, a worldview that's contrarian, you know, that's not the idea either, you know, but these concepts are very, very applicable and, uh, you know, they're things that people won't hear other places, you know, and so we've all seen the chiropractors that use and abuse and misuse philosophical constructs and, and ideas and that's, again, it's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It's the same in religion. It's the same in everything else. You're going to see people misuse things, you know, for whatever advantages. Um, so that's why I'm a big fan of, you know, doing your own research and, and seeing for yourself. So, yeah, yeah. The, the other thing I, I kind of have been interested in, and this is yeah. something that I think in upper cervical, I don't really ever hear anybody talk about, but it's something that we encounter all the time, you know, with patients. And that's the concept of the periodicity of subluxation. Yeah. Um, let me know what you think about that. You know, what's your uh, experience researching or reading anything about that and, and maybe where it applies today? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I've a lot of these terms and, and things that may or may not have like research that backs them up, like, like resting, for instance, like, where did that come from? Why right. do we rest people? Right. Well, if you go back and you search all of the green books, I've done this and look and look up rest or resting uh, and, and go back, it goes back. I think it was like something like volume five, maybe had one note where they rested a patient for, I believe it was like 30 minutes after their adjust, the adjustment. And it was a house that they went to somebody's house and adjusted them. Mm. Uh, and it was BJ. He went to somebody's house, adjusted them and had them rest for 30 minutes to, to basically limit those destructive forces. Yeah. And help, help the body do its own correction, right. Or its own innate adjustment. Um, and so, you know, when it comes to like period and, and then if you like keep, uh, searching through the green books, it comes back up and it doesn't come back up until volume 18 and then volume 12. And then when you get to the end, like the last five to 10 books, they're resting people for three hours in the clinic, you know, three hours. Yeah. Uh, and, and they're like, 
if you're not resting for three hours, you're not resting people. I'm like, yeah, I can't do that. <laughs> yeah. But, but the periodicity thing is interesting, right? And like, if you look that up in the green books, uh, I think it shows up maybe once or twice. It's not in there a lot, but it is in there. Um, I could be wrong, but uh, you know, when you think about it, I mean, I, I know for myself, like I periodically need to be adjusted at a certain amount of time. I, I tend, I'm, you know, maybe for myself, I'm too in tune with my, my misalignment and paying too much attention to it. That can happen. I think people can like focus on things too much, but I don't know. You know, I, I, I know when my body's out and it's almost the same amount of time every time. Mm. Um, and whether or not I've, if I've had a big injury or something's come along and yeah, I need to be adjusted sooner, but even, even without that, you know, that that's, I noticed that. And I think that there are periods of patterns of subluxation too, where exactly. like you'll have, you know, uh, like for instance, my patient with the, the, and we're not going to knock on wood, like, uh, she's doing amazing uh, and she's going to continue to do amazing. Uh, but, um, you know, she came in with the fatigue and, and all that stuff. And what you'll notice is like every six months or every, yeah. it, I think initially it's like maybe a quarter or uh, three months. And then it's like six months. You have these, like, ah, some of their more neurological stuff will come up and they didn't do anything. And just, right. it just comes back. And they're like, why did that happen? This, I do see that. I, I see that. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the, languaging around it I thought was really funny and that's what got my attention BJ would call it like the robe the roaming roving hoboing subluxation mm. it's kind of mm-hmm. here today gone tomorrow it's in and out and all yeah, and yeah because yeah. they would check folks literally at the same time every yes. day 12 p.m twice a day yep and so it was like what they were observing was all these changes that seem like they're subluxated but then they're not and you know it's showing the sign again but if we give it a little time it clears out and just you know Ooh, this waxing yeah. and waning of that's... the neurological signs of subluxation. And, and, you know, the caution with that was be mindful that you don't think every little thing is a subluxation. And this is where a technique comes into play because we have our objective indicators of what constitutes a subluxation. And we need to be mindful of how to, you know, how to keep all of that in a, in a larger context of healing and physiology so that we're adjusting folks when they're actually subluxated uh, mm-hmm. and, and leaving them alone when, you know, there's more time required for that to kind of run its course and work itself out. And it's such an interesting thing, because if you look at some of the cases in volume 25, where they show the scans yep. and they show the whole thing, it's like, yeah, that looks like pattern, you know, but they didn't yeah. adjust them. And here's how the patient felt. They felt terrible still. All these other things come out, but as they play it out over a period of time, you see that thing work its way clear and mm-hmm. you see it in the x-ray images they take, you see it in the scans and it's like, hmm, that's a very interesting you know, thing that I think we all can be mindful to be more conservative, you know, a little bit more mindful of when and how we apply an adjustment, um, you know, so as to not just slow down folks recovery, but not make them dependent, you know, on these external forces, mm-hmm. not to become, you know, uh, someone that has to use chiropractic as a, as an aspirin, every time, an aspirin. you know, yeah. little, every little thing comes up, they have to go have someone else work on them. You know, we're yeah. into resilience. We're into self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. you know, we're into innate intelligence and the body's ability to heal. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, we have to offer that nobody else does. So, um, awesome. Okay. We talked a little bit about the research clinic. We don't need to go in the weeds on that, but there's oh, yeah. a lot, a lot of cool stuff out there. I mean, you know, the what? electroencephalo neuromentempograph, right. This crazy, predecessor of the EEG that BJ invented to measure the the flow of the mental impulse throughout the body. I mean, what in the world? 
grounded shielded boots for scanning. So there was no EMF contamination of the scans. You know, we got people that don't even bother scanning anymore. And it's like, they were doing it at a level where, you know, if you didn't, you had to follow the strict rules with medications and all that stuff. And it was another level. So they were deriving conclusions based on data that was collected very, very strictly. And now we act like we know better because, you know, we kind of half-assed it and came up with our own conclusions. Um, So it's the point being, go back and see what was done there, you know, get an idea of kind of what they were thinking about and the folks that were involved because yeah. the next part of that, which is the technique development. A lot of those folks were, were working in the research clinic, right? They were elbow to elbow with BJ on this stuff. And then they ended up in the field mm-hmm. refining that stuff with technique. So uh, any thoughts to add there? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think, I think you were headed down an interesting path there with the periodicity and then, you know, conservative adjusting and, uh, you know, just being careful. Right. And, and, uh, oh man, Bud Crowder. So like, if you want to name some names, right. So you got like Lyle Sherman who, uh, graduated in 34. He was the specific class. They were February of 1934. They graduated. Uh, Lyle Sherman was one of those guys and, uh, uh, Sherman just, uh, stoic, like you very strict, uh, you know, very scientific, Pass that down, I'm sure, to Dr. Crowder. Pass that down to Dr. Blair. Uh, Dr. Sherman became Dr. Blair's doctor uh, when he got to school. Kept him alive for another. They said Dr. Blair was going to pass away when he was young, and he had really bad, I think, asthma and some mm-hmm. some other stuff going on. I'm not sure all the details there, but Sherman kept him alive with good upper cervical care. He got into it through orth. I think it was Grostic, where there was a Grostic doc close to him in Texas. But uh, man, you just talk about these guys. Dr. Bud Bud Crowder, uh, he graduated in 46, I think, uh, right around Dr. Blair. Dr. Thompson graduated in that time frame. All these people, they were so strict and so methodical and scientific about everything they did. And their philosophy was so strong that you could not shake them on, you know, Dr. Blair, if a patient came to him and they had taken a medication or drank coffee and they had driven three hours, he'd turn them away and he'd be like, no, nope, come back tomorrow or come back, you know, whenever, whenever we could get you back. He'd turn them away because the scan, he couldn't depend on the scan. Right. And that was, he only did scans, right? So Dr. Blair didn't do leg checks. He didn't do posture. He only did scans. And, um, you know, we get, we get all these other tools from other techniques, but, um, uh, which I think are helpful. And I, and I think it's, it's good, but like you said, you know, your posture may change, uh, at five o'clock versus at three o'clock and your scan may change as well between five yeah. o'clock and three o'clock, depending on what you've drank or ate or, or you know, what you've done. Yep. So these, I mean, yeah, the level of proficient or uh, execution and, and specificity that they had is unrivaled today, I would say. I, 100%. I don't know anyone who has a grounded shielded booth in their office. I And I know, I think most of the like big upper cervical names, like I don't know anybody that has a grounded shielded booth. And today yeah, and, you need it. <laughs> and, and what they would call that is establishing constants and eliminating variables, right? It says over yeah. and over and over through those texts. It's like we're trying to eliminate variability in our assessments so that we know exactly what's going on and what to do and how and why and when. Um, and, you know, what's interesting when you think about the different generations of chiropractors, it's like, man, those guys in the 50s and 60s were like so about it, right? They were very like, very grounded, you know, very like 
intense, you know, with their yeah. philosophy and very intense with their technique. And there was a lot of like real specific technique developing then, including things like SOT and Gonstead and Thompson yeah. and all these others, but all very precise, very, very minimal adjusting, very specific adjusting. And then you kind of hit the seventies and got into kind of like the hippie era. And all of a sudden you had like Reggie gold and these guys come out where it was like, we just need to adjust everybody all the time, you know, day in, day out and, and technique. I don't want to say fell by the wayside, but it became, you know, what it seems like that objective straight movement, you know, Joe Strauss and all those folks uh, became a little bit of a less about getting sick people. Well, and a little bit of more about you're just better off not being subluxated and come in and lay down yes. kind of a thing. And yes. then with the eighties and the medical insurance and all that kind of stuff, it's like, there are, there are trends to follow that have brought us to where we are today. And the thing about that is like, you'll see dragged through all of that timeline or folks that are still in that sort of fifties mindset, folks that interned with Dr. Crowder, for example, have a very, very specific oh. context for chiropractic. And that's the way it needs to be. And this is the way that we saw it done. Then you got the folks that came out of the objective straight movement, same type of thing. I never ask a patient about a symptom. I never talked to them. And, and again, I'm not saying these things are right or wrong, but these, these kinds of concepts end up carrying on. And then the folks in the eighties, you know, we're dealing with these folks now where they're trying to expand the scope of chiropractic because they're worried about, you know, CMS guidelines and what's reimbursable um, and trying to get back to the point, you know, where we had, uh, you know, our hand around the neck of the golden goose. And then everything in between, right? And so all these things matter and all these things are, are out there in the current you know, landscape. And it's important to take a step back uh, because as Sid Williams would say, you know, looking back to look ahead type of mm -hmm. concept. Um, I think it all becomes a little bit more clear when you hear things coming from different, you know, different angles and different folks. You have to keep it in a context. Who taught them? Where were they coming from? Yes. What was their, you know, what was their perspective and, and why did they arrive at that conclusion? Um, cause I'm a fan of learning from everybody, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, we, we kind of got into like up into Dr. Blair and then where the technique picks up is all the stuff that Dr. Blair did. And we all know about his research and we all know about, you know, the different angles and the iterations of adjustments and all those different concepts and how him and Dr. Muncie worked on things. And, you know, that, that lineage continues on through all the advanced instructors. You know, there's a bunch of Blair's interns that are kind of out in the wind that are a little bit disconnected, but there's a lot of folks out there that, you know, learn from him and know those things. And, you know, we've got our advanced instructors and Dr. Tom Forrest, and he's basically taught all of us, you know, in one way or another. Um, so that, that continues on. Right. And, and I think it's mindful, you know, it's, it's helpful for us to be mindful of that so that we can step in line and do our part. Right. And not to say that we need to do it the way that it's always been done, or we need to reinvent the wheel, but to step in line and to be a part of the progression, I think, is uh, an interesting opportunity. And this, you know, kind of creates the context for how you can do that. Um, so when you look at the future of upper cervical care, you know, considering, let's say, the last hundred years, you know, and if we're to project here forward, what what's some of the recent developments that you find particularly encouraging? And, um, you know, we'll start with that. Yeah, well, I think you and I can both agree that. Uh... Cone beam CT is an amazing development that all of the founders would drool over. Um, I also think that motion is important. You know, I know Cameron's uh, really excited about Cameron Bearder. He's really into the motion stuff. Um, and he's right. You know, th there is a motion component. I, th I think that um, there is more to be done in the field of cone beam CT development and software analysis. So right now we're working on Dizior software. 
Um, actually just had a conversation with that company yesterday. Uh, really excited. They're excited. There's a lot of momentum there. And uh, we are creating a one-click 3D, not 2D. So everything we've been doing in the past is X-ray is 2D. And even with Combeam CT, we've been doing 2D analysis on, on 3D. This is 3D analysis, taking into all of the malformation, all of the structure, and then analyzing it with three-dimensional plotted, uh, basically like algorithms. And that I think will really be a step. It's not going to be the everything I used to think, oh yeah, that was one of my dreams a couple of years ago when I first saw CBCT, I was like, we're going to build a software that's going to do orthogonal and articular at once. And that's going to be it. That's going to blow it up, you know? And it's like, now that we're like almost there, this is crazy that we're almost there. We're going to release this software by the end of next year. It's not going to be perfect for everybody for everything, but it's going to really change some stuff. And uh, I think that's going to be cool. I think if we can add in a, a motion component to that, I think that will be really interesting. I know the, uh, the TATS people, the uh, upper cervical group with Shondell, they, they do the motion stuff and the uh, Pierce people, they do that too. Um, so I think that there's a lot of, be, a lot of uh, uh, technology and information to be gained from uh, looking at different groups and what different groups are doing. I am not gonna lie, I use an orthospinology instrument on some of my patients because they have craniocervical instability and uh, you know they, I've adjusted. It's like a huge ASR. I adjust ASR very gently, like on the lightest setting, least amount of force. You know the whole thing, and they don't hold unless I do a tiny little click with the orthospinology instrument, the handheld instrument. Uh, and then, holy cow, everything changed. Their worlds change. Their head sits straight. Their shoulders drop. The everything. Their head pain goes. You know. And so it's like we got to start looking at what other groups are doing and, and going, okay, you're doing that. That's working for you. Why is that working for you? And how do we use that to help us get even better results? Because what we're doing, the Blair work is incredible. Like the articular analysis, the, the, the asymmetries and all that, it's, it is one level above, you know, what came before it. It was the end of the BJ Palmer clinic that was the pinnacle of the research. They were doing that articular uh, asymmetry research at the end of that clinic. And he just kind of took it and he went even further with it. They were doing uh, stereograph images. You know, they were doing some of the stuff that he really developed, but he took it to a whole nother level. So, you know, I think we need to look at what other groups are doing and, and start going, okay, you know, because we haven't really had we haven't had, and uh, unfortunately, Roy Sweat just passed away, right? I mean, he was 91, I think. Uh, so that's amazing. We need some new people that not just come up with, okay, I've got this idea. We're going to do this. We need to test it. We need to research it. We need to put it through the paces. You know, I think Nuka does an amazing job of really fine tuning their technique and they go slow, they really test things and they've got a great standards uh, uh, committee and, and they really, they, they've got that dialed in. And, uh, you know, I think that's valuable. So I, I think we need to take some of these things one at a time, test them out and, and see. And I think the council can be a place where uh, some of that stuff happens. 
but it needs to happen within the technique groups. You can't have the council telling people what to do because right. that's not going to fly. Nobody wants that. But the technique groups are going to have to start, you know, okay, this this might work a little better. This might work a little better there. Yeah, and the interesting thing about that, you know, and, and the reason why I wanted to talk about the technology in the beginning is because what I kind of see is in the in the initial development of upper cervical, it was led by technology, right? Yes. It was imaging technology. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of back in this place where imaging technology is opening a lot of doors. So the next, if, if history were to follow, you know, the next thing will be how do we increase our level of neurological assessment to go along with that imaging? And then if the step follows to the next place, it's like, okay, how do we put those things together into a more effective technique approach? And so I think we might kind of be in a little bit of that, almost like your patient with the cycles of healing. It's like this, you know, this profession is going to go through cycles of development, right? Because again, those, those principles are life principles. They apply to a profession, right? And so I think we're kind of on the cusp of maybe hitting that, you know, that next level of like imaging and neurological assessment development, leveling up in that area. So that then that leads to the next bit, which is how do we advance technique with these, with these recent, you know, with this increased data. Yes. And so a lot of folks kind of put the cart before the horse and they want to reinvent the technique, but it's like, you know, maybe there's a way that we can do this on purpose, you know, rather yes. than kind of just shooting, uh, shooting things at the wall and hoping to see what sticks. So, um, yeah. just a really interesting, you know, and really interesting. I wanted to pull that sort of, you know, piece out of it because I've been thinking about that. And it's like where we're come from could be part of where we're going. And, and if we can yeah. learn from where we've come from to head in a direction, you know, with a little bit more intentionality, you know, we don't have the resources BJ was thrown at this stuff. Right. So we're in a different, we're in a different place where we need to be very, very mindful of, you know, how we use our resources as we're trying to move forward. I would say BJ didn't have the resources that he threw at it. (laughs) If you read some of the, the, uh, history behind, if you read, uh, geez, what book was it that I was reading the other day? Oh gosh. It was one of the books. Oh, I, I've read so many lately. I, oh, I think it was the BJ or no, which book was it? Oh, maybe it was the history, uh, associations, um, BJ of Davenport, but one of, one of the BJ, uh, history yeah, books, yeah. there's so many of them, but they were talking about the money that he threw at things. They were broke. They didn't have the money to pay for the research. Yeah. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, we gotta, we gotta come together. We gotta work together. Cool. So any current challenges you think are worth noting? I mean, you know, uh, obviously we've got colleagues in Canada that are having real, real challenge yeah. with just that baseline piece we were just talking about, which is, you know, the use of imaging. So uh, any other ca- challenges that you see kind of on the landscape? Well, I mean, I, I think that, uh, oh, geez, that's a, that's a heavy question. Um, yes. Uh, imaging rights are on the chopping block everywhere across the world, everywhere in the United States, uh, definitely in Canada. When Canada, so the BC fell, uh, they lost their x-ray rights. And once that happens, that sets a precedent. And that now may affect like Calgary and Dr. Schulten and Dr. Kuhn, Ben Kuhn, they're up there, you know, trying to, trying to not let that happen to them. But man, it's scary because it's a, it's a domino effect. Um, and that's very easily can slip down into the United States. So we've got to be very careful about our rights and protecting them. And ah, man, it's scary. And I hate to say this, but you know, there's fewer and fewer of the the doctors who are taking x-rays and doing, you know, really specific work. 
I'm maybe not fewer and fewer, but maybe they're not as vocal. And they've got this really small group who are really vocal, who are trying to push our profession in a direction that I do not agree with, right? And I'm sure you don't either. So we need to be very um, careful. We need to uh, protect ourselves uh, legislatively. We need to be involved. So we need to be part of our state uh, chiropractic associations. We need to be part of our national chiropractic association. So ICA, if you want to be part of F FICO, I think is one of them. Some, you know, some people don't like ICA. IFCO, like, yeah. IFCO, yeah. So you, you got to pick your group, but get behind them, you know, support them, pay your dues. Because uh, when we come together and we work together, things work a lot better. Um, and, and there are some serious things on the line right now. One of them being imaging rights, uh, other things being just in general, um, you know, pushing prescription rights and uh, some things with Medicare, you know, there's some things and, and I'm not a big fan of Medicare, but you know, the way one insurance company goes, all the rest go that way. So it's, you gotta be, gotta be careful. Yeah. And, and the reason, you know, the reason why it's important to, to bring that up, it's like, nothing is a given, you know, it's yeah. like, you can go so far and, and think that something is just, is just the way it is. And that's not always the case, right? Like things can be taken away and, you know, things Absolutely. can change, um, you know, at a dramatic rate. So, you know, it's, it's good to be watchful and mindful, be, you know, obviously have your eye on the future and be, and be, you know, excited about the opportunities, uh, and the things that we can do to, to get better and progress, but you always kind of got to have one eye over your shoulder. Right. And I know BJ was pretty, he was pretty defensive and pretty offensive at the same time and, and mindful mm -hmm. of, you know, all the different variables and folk forces working against him. And, um, you know, for better or worse, you know, he had his, uh, he had his day to fight the fight. And so, you know, and sometimes you got to step up or, or step out, you know, and, or be forced out. So it's an interesting time. And I think it's, it's a, a time where folks that are doing conservative scientific patient centered, you know, chiropractic should yeah. have a voice, you know, on yeah. these issues, you know, and, and the crazy thing about the x-ray part of it, it's like, doesn't seem like that was the case. It's like, so anyway, uh, appreciate you. Appreciate you bringing that up. I want folks to be, you know, we don't want to end on a somber note, but you do need yeah. to be aware of, you need to be aware of, uh, you know, some of the threats, you know, and some of the, you know, things that could be affecting us in a, in a way that limits the progression of some of the things we were talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and to, uh, to add to that and, and kind of close it out is we have the greatest technology that we've ever had in our profession right now with cone beam CT, with thermography, with all the, the cool tools that we have. Um, and we are, I would say as a profession, as an upper cervical profession, probably getting the best results we've ever gotten as a whole, as a profession, because we have all of this, you know, great development that we've done over the last hundred years. And at the same time, we have to keep, like you said, a, a, an eye over the shoulder and uh, just keep an eye out because we don't want to lose it. And the way that we do that is stay involved, be a member, pay your dues, you know, be, be a part of the movement and try not to be an island, try to, try to, you know, come to your meetings and, and the annual, annual get togethers so that you know what's going on. And, uh, and we can be all aware and on the same, same, uh, you know, ship. And some folks like to gripe about how it's not the way it used to be, you know, and like, uh, that's okay if you want to do that, you know, but again, it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. You know, there's like no end of, 
well, back in my day, you know, and that's fine, but it really doesn't do anything. So if that's kind of your angle, then, um, you can, you can sit with it, you know, and that's okay. But for the rest of us, we need to go, we need to go in a direction. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, And just to like, lighten the mood here at the end uh that that quote find it fix it leave it alone i mm-hmm. believe it's at still the father of osteopathy ah, no, that's right it's not even a chiropractic quote so you know there you go blow the lid off that thing uh that's so awesome isn't that cool that's so, great all, all the gondroids are going like what what that can't be right so hey anyway <laughs> if, if anything that uh, we talked about here you know, we're not claiming to be, you know, chiropractic historians or experts on any of these topics, right? I mean, we're doing our best as people who are practicing clinicians to appreciate, you know, the foundations of our profession. If there's anything we said that was maybe slightly inaccurate was, you know, you got any clarifying points you'd like to add? Well, I'm not above reproach, you know, get in touch, let us know. Um, you know, there's always someone that's got some crazy, you know, crazy one-off story or a, a perspective about that stuff. So I'm open to all of it maybe has a, a, a citation or a reference that we don't have access to, you know? Yes. And, yes. And if anybody wants some of this material that I want covered today, just let me know, you know, we're, we're happy to share that with you. I've got plenty of, you know, chiropractic history stuff. So if you need yeah. anything, let us know. And if you're a student and listening and, and you kind of like, you know, we may have touched on a subject that you've really piqued your interest and we didn't really get to get into it too deep. And you want to know more about, let's say the NCM and, and how, chiropractic thermography has developed over time. Um, you know, let me know about that too. I mean, send us, drop us a line in, in social media or send an email to Blair Cairo podcast at gmail.com. Cause we can revisit some of these concepts concepts in a little bit more depth if that's, um, if that's of value to you. So, um, uh, anyway, appreciate you, Tyler. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, really fun conversation. I hope to have more of them like this in the future and just kind of round out, you know, some of the content, you know, in, in these other areas of chiropractic that are, you know, tangent to what we're doing every day. So, uh, any last words of uh, advice or encouragement before we, we wrap up for today? Start it well. There you go. You've been given the sacred trust, right? Guard it well. I've been. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.